Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. On today's episode of Beyond the Bump, we have Dr. Tinney back in for his big encore. You asked and we delivered. For those that don't know Dr. Timmy, he's an obstetrician, a gynecologist, infertility specialist, and more importantly, Sophie's dad. We have had him on the show previously, so go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't already. You guys had so many questions that we've had to split this episode into two parts yet again. In part one, he answers your questions on infertility, fertility, contraception, and preconception. And in part two, that will be launched next week, he will cover pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. JD Poos, welcome back for another episode. Thanks, Sexy Sophie. <laughs> that used to be my hotmail name. Oh my sexy god. Sexy Sophie, but it was spelled S O F Y. I don't even know why I couldn't have just spelt my name. Correctly. Do you know what mine was? What? Bumfley Bag. 85. Was there a reason? Well, who has Bumfley Bag full stop? Why was I 85? Yeah, I feel like you could have been the number or the OG. That's right. Oh, Aww. sorry, I'm just Squirt drowning my child in. In milk. Okay, highs and lows of your week. Whew, put me on the spot. Highs, my parents are up, my uncle is up, we are having an awesome time. Tomorrow we're going to Wet n Wild. My sister-in-law promised my girls that that was their Christmas present. We didn't want to do it in the holidays because it was hectic. So we're giving them a day off school to do that. It will be fun. As Goldie spooning a nappy. <laughs> oh, please don't leak. Low. Low. Oh, I can't. It's taken a while to find that low. That's good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it'd have to be the amount of mosquitoes oh. from the floodings that we've had. It is just, it's been a nightmare. The kids have been bitten alive and we've had to uh, bomb the joint and put um, nets up over their beds. But, you know, there's always a solution with a problem. Australia. Australia. What about yourself? What's the um, highs? highs was that Poppy turned two on the weekend. Oh, and so we had Yeah, so we had some friends over for her birthday and also had another party on the Sunday for her friend's second birthday. So it was just a really nice weekend. It was busy mm. and by Monday I was tired. <laughs> but it, it was just really nice yeah. to celebrate both of them and see friends and um, lows of this week is... I remember this week being quite challenging with Poppy as well. So Goldie just turned six weeks old and she's just like her witching hour in mm. the evenings gotten a fair bit better. And I know last... I like that you have a hook with your hand. <laughs> witching hour. Witching hour. <laughs> the pirate hour. <laughs> um, and last time I said that we were going to give the dummy a try. And she's taken to the dummy kind of, but like she doesn't use it to sleep at night. It's just to help settle her in the evenings. And sometimes she has it for her naps during the day. So I'm an... But that's a- perfect, Yeah, isn't it? but I'm an amateur at giving a dummy. Yeah. Is there like a skill to it? 
persistence. Yeah, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm an amateur at it. I'm like, I don't know it. when to do, 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 yeah. do it now. Anyway, so, that, so that's all been fine. So the witching hour has gotten better, but she's got more alert. So sometimes at night she has these periods after a feed where she'll just be completely happy but awake, mm. but it'll be from like 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. And I'm like, girl. And you're waiting to I don't want. Sleep. I don't want to play with you right now. <laughs> like this is not fun and games. So that's been hard. Like I've been tired this week but that's okay i've got a newborn that's all good that's right it's always next week babes yeah or next year or next decade to sleep yeah all right let's get stuck in Woo! guess who's back 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 again 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 timmy's back welcome back great to be back welcome back yeah. to the potty how does it feel that an encore has been not just requested but it's been demanded i've had just the most incredibly exciting couple of months since i last saw you and uh, how's your instagram thrilled. account going that's the exciting thing mm. 298 including a lovely young lady who joined this morning and i just need two more for the 300 and so that's been really the highlight of my last couple of months. Forget the new granddaughter. Oh, and yeah. oh, no. yeah. Goldie. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I did have another granddaughter, little Goldie, who's uh, absolutely beautiful and sprung into the world. Flew into the world. In the six-minute second stage and just another little beautiful granddaughter to rejoice. We're so blessed. And FYI, Timmy... Didn't deliver Goldie. No. No, but I did request a little girl called Goldie. And uh, as he gets uh, what he wants, as Sophie has always been the golden child, (laughs) when Dr. Timmy requests a little girl called Goldie, guess what? uh, (laughs) Dr. Timmy gets. Guess what he gets? (laughs) Beautiful little girl called Goldie. So I was lucky enough to get up on the first plane the next morning. The six fifteen flight from uh, from Melbourne, Melbourne to um, I was so excited. I didn't even have my toasty in the lounge, mm. and uh, I actually got to be there when Big Sister Poppy met Goldie for the first time. So it was beautiful. So a, cute. A beautiful moment. Dad was chuffed because the midwife I had looking after me is a listener. And when I said, oh, what part of induction do you reckon I'll get to, you know, that's going to, you know, do you think the gel will put me into labour or do you think breaking my waters will put you into labour? And she turned to me and she goes, what does Dr. Timmy think? So <laughs> hopefully Claire will be tuning in again for this one to see what Dr. Timmy thinks. So for anyone who hasn't listened to the first two episodes with Dr. Timmy, Dr. Timmy is my dad, this is Sophie speaking, and he is an obstetrician, a gynaecologist and a fertility specialist, grandfather of three. Highly recommend listening to those episodes first because we've we've asked yeah we've asked our listeners for questions and we're not going to repeat any of the same questions and answers. We're going to try and talk about different questions and we have been blown away yet again. We have been inundated with questions. I thought maybe most people's questions would be answered by now, but I am we were one hundred percent wrong because there have been so many. We've got a few pages to get through, but um, let's start with the main question. What made you choose vaginas as a job? And I love that Jade says it with an F, not a V. Vaginas. Vagina. Funny. (laughs) Vaginas. 
I did mention in the first podcast that, you know, when I was a medical student, I had come from a very non-medical, non-university educated background and decided to do medicine. And when I did my obstetrics and gynae term, I absolutely loved obstetrics. As so many students that I meet in the years since say to you, you know, I'm thinking of doing obstetrics because they really do enjoy that term. I was really drawn to this specialty of, of obstetrics and gynaecology and uh, IVF. And although I often get asked socially all those expected sort of predictable vaginal related questions, it's a, it's 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 not the way you think when you work professionally. Mm. And and I love my job and. Uh, it's a very separate thing from anything outside of work. I remember at school a lot of guys I went to school with were like, your dad's so lucky, he's got the best job oh. in the world. And I'm sure now that they're probably at the age where they're starting to have their own children, they probably look at it quite differently and think, hmm, that's yeah. not really the way that I like to see a vagina. Yeah. <laughs> like it's he's not, not stopping, re- he's not yeah. stepping into a porno every yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great things about obstetrics and gynecology is that it covers a lot of areas of medicine, like there's a very strong clinical side, so that's being able to communicate with the patient, take an accurate history, make good decisions, and then there's a surgical side, um, particularly obviously with gynaecology, and there's been huge advances in gynaecological surgery in the time that I've done gynaecology, particularly with regard to laparoscopic surgery. And then there's a scientific element to it, and and certainly IVF is a is an example of that, where the science of embryology and IVF come into it. So there's a lot of uh, patient counselling and psychology involved, and that ability to um, establish a good relationship with the patient, so that you can uh, you can help them with difficult situations and. And it's certainly a specialty with triumphs and tra- tragedies. I mean, um, from the highs of, of the most beautiful delivery, like Goldie's arrival, to the lows of the, of the worst tragedies you can imagine. And sometimes in those tragic situations, you'd like to think that the contribution you made to the management of that patient along as a team with other medical practitioners, with the nurses, with the midwives, with everyone involved, that you actually made a difference to making that uh, difficult situation Mm. easier to cope for for that patient. So it is a very varied field and in my practice I haven't sort of honed down on any one part of that specialty. I've I've really kept my practice very broad. Mm. That's good. And one more important question from a patient of yours. They want to know, are you watching this season of Married at First Sight? Absolutely. I consider very strongly that all television of that nature, so we're talking maths, Bachelor, Bachelorette and Love uh, Love Island, both Australia and UK, is an important part of my homework. Um, if I've been out late, I will come home and watch a recorded version of it before the work next day because uh, my patients expect me to be up to date on these things. Absolutely. And have an opinion. And um, it can be a great sort of um, 
like icebreaker. Yeah, and, and a sort of a way of having rapport with patients to have a sort of a bit of banter mm. as part of a consultation. I think some some patients do like more of a clinical doctor, a doctor that's straight to the point and is very very professional and doesn't talk about anything but but the medical side of things. But I think particularly in obstetrics, um, to have a bit of banter and a bit of fun. And to be remembered for having that banter is is a great thing. I, I get stopped in the street by patients who say to me, oh, I thought of you the other day when the new season <laughs> of MAPS started. I was thinking, oh, Tim will be watching that. So, uh, yes, I am, if you haven't seen me yet and asked me. I think that's great because I um, my doctor has a good personality and really good banter as well. So when I bring my children in, they're comfortable with him because of the way he is. Mm. And I think it is important mm. to have that connection. Mm. Everyone's different, I guess, but personally I think it's important. Anyway, moving on yeah, to the real on. stuff, we've um, broken it down into different sections and the first section is about fertility and infertility. And I think IVF is something that is becoming more and more common, but often people don't actually understand the way it works. And obviously it's very complex, so we don't need to know embryologically too much about it but difference between IVF and insemination was one of the questions yeah that this has been becoming a little more controversial recently uh, where studies have shown that patients with uh, we'll just use the term infertility because of course these people do go on to have babies so they are actually fertile but they're seeking treatment for not getting pregnant Sometimes I feel insemination is used as a sort of in-between treatment rather than embracing the need for IVF. I think insemination has some very important specific indications and they are becoming more common. For example, a same-sex female couple who come wishing to get pregnant, there is absolutely no, no reason why... Um, Either of these women would not be fertile and they simply need donor sperm. So that's a perfect situation for insemination. Another situation... Just quickly, so insemination is quote, unquote, turkey-based stuff. Yeah, well, we do it. It's a little bit like a pap smear and we get a sample of sperm and we draw that up into a syringe with a very fine catheter that passes through the cervix into the uterine cavity and it's done the same way as we do an embryo transfer because, of course, we're transferring something into exactly the same spot. And, of course, we've timed it so that it's at the time where there will be an egg available for uh, fertilisation or, indeed, to be even more accurate, we can trigger ovulation and then do the insemination when we know the egg will be there. Yeah. So insemination might be through a donor insemination and that's quite complicated because, of course, if a donor donates sperm, there has to be a quarantine period before we can use that sperm. So, for example, if a couple come with a known donor, we have to wait a certain mm. number of months before we can use that sperm, having done HIV, Hep B, Hep C testing beforehand. Um and then once a specific donor who's not a known donor but a, a, a person who has kindly, altruistically donated their sperm 
has conceived a certain number of babies through their sperm that is capped so that there is a limit to how many babies can oh, be. Oh, so sick. someone can't have like a 1,000 of yes. their babies running around. And then there are other situations where, for example, um, there might be an ejaculatory problem in the husband, so it's much easier to, to take the pressure off the husband Oh, sorry, partner, and freeze the sperm when he can produce a specimen and then inseminate the sperm with no pressure. The other situation is where the partner has no sperm or perhaps a genetic condition that they don't wish to use his sperm. And then another time we use insemination is if somebody has such an irregular cycle that you need to use very specific ovulation medication to bring on ovulation so you then would trigger ovulation and then inseminate the sperm. However, there would be some arguments that if you're going to that much trouble to to stimulate ovulation and trigger trigger ovulation and do an insemination, you've really done nine-tenths of an IVF cycle. You've really done everything except an IVF egg collection. So there would be a valid argument that given the success rate of IVF would be so much higher than the insemination in those circumstances, those patients would often consider going straight to IVF. Mm. And the other situation where patients would go straight to IVF would be if if the woman in the couple was getting older, like, say, over 40 years of age, the insemination pregnancy rate will be so low that, and her chances are declining quickly that it would be better to consider just going straight to IVF. Mm-hmm. I mean, I noticed that on one of your previous episodes, you, in fact, I think the last episode, you had a same-sex couple. and He's been listening. They, yeah, uh, Timmy. And, and that just highlighted to me something that, I think has been really good about this series is that it's it's trying to emphasise to people that when you talk to someone, say like me who's an obstetrician, that there isn't just a homogenous group of people out there wanting to have a baby who are all the same type of person, who are all in the same type of relationship, who are all experiencing the same sort of pregnancies and deliveries and options and decisions and outcomes. But in fact, pregnancy, both getting pregnant, being pregnant and postnatally is unique to every single pregnancy. And therefore, when I'm answering questions on inductions or answering questions on getting pregnant or answering questions about what people's choices are, it's really important to keep in mind that that everybody is an individual. So in a consulting session in my rooms, let's say I see 30 pregnant women in the morning, well, some of them might be single, they might be in a same-sex relationship, they might be married or in a long-term de facto relationship, or indeed they may be in a long-term relationship and experiencing great difficulties in that relationship. They may have a significant medical past history or be extremely healthy. They may have conceived using IVF or spontaneously or even unintentionally. So in a morning, like no two women may be in the same set of circumstances 
And in all those variables, I haven't even mentioned about what might be going right or wrong with the progress of their pregnancy. Mm. That in itself is another whole set of a million different variables. Mm. So that's where this series has been good for people to realise that not all pregnant people or couples are in the same experience. Mm. Every experience is different and their doctor is 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 managing them or trying to manage them by understanding their individual situation. Mm. And what's the procedure when you freeze your eggs and decide that you want to use them? Yeah, well, that that's becoming more common for me now because effective freezing of eggs has now been around for about five to ten years. And I, and I use a time frame because... There is a period there where it gets better and better. I mean, mm. the, the first egg freezing is obviously not as successful or as good as, as the current egg freezing where the, the rates of successful unfreezing and fertilization and subsequent pregnancy are extremely high. So let's for say, for example, a woman comes to see me at 35 to freeze her eggs because and a common circumstance here would be that she's just um, completed a long-term relationship and is now single and thinking, oh, my goodness, I thought I was with the partner I would have my babies with and now I find myself single and 35. Well, that lady may come back in two or three years wishing to have a baby in which case I would encourage her to try and conceive spontaneously, just like lots of other 37, 38-year-olds mm. are out, out there are trying to do. And in the event that she didn't conceive spontaneously, we would thaw the eggs, fertilise them with her now partner's sperm and put what is now an embryo back into the uterine cavity just like we would have done if we'd done IVF when she very first collected the eggs. Also, some people might come back and say that um, I haven't found a partner and I would now like to have a baby as a single mum, so the eggs would be thawed, fertilised with donor sperm, and the same process ensue from there. And that's quite common as well. Is there a certain age that you have to be to make that decision to have a child on your own? You know, do they say that you've got to have a certain duration of your time to find a partner to be able to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we first, in terms of age brackets, first we would encourage people if they were going to freeze their eggs that the best quality eggs will be frozen before you're 35. I'm not suggesting for one moment we would refuse to freeze your eggs at 40, but you would need to be realistic that when they were thawed, they would have the fertilisation rate and the pregnancy rate and the miscarriage rate of a 40-year-old. In terms of using frozen eggs and subsequently fertilising them or even thawing embryos and putting them back, we consider that the average age of menopause is about 51 in Australia. So in Australia, we don't do embryo transfers with either donor or frozen embryos beyond 52 years of age, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, is being realistic, not mean, because 
we do know people are desperate to have a baby, but you have to try and set some sort of realistic standards to avoid people making decisions that are not in their best interests. And is it completely up to the sole person? If I was 18 years of age and I walked in and said, I'm single and I want to have a baby on my own, no one can stop me? Like, is that... At 18, no one could stop you, no. Yeah, so it's totally fine to make that decision. Interesting. What are the effects on your fertility if you've had a long period of time not menstruating because you are being underweight? That is a great question. So there is a very big difference between when you're not having periods at all, that is called amenorrhea, and there's a very big difference between being amenorrheic as a result of, say, polycystic ovarian syndrome and being overweight and being amenorrheic because you're underweight. And the classic example of an underweight amenorrheic patient would be either uh, a young lady with anorexia or uh, like marathon runners who you see who are like under 40 kilos because the difference is that in the very thin patient, they have chronically extremely low levels of estrogen and that's very unhealthy to all the estrogen containing uh, dependent parts of your body so your uterus your cervix your vagina your bladder and also just generally your skin your hair and of course importantly your bones So if a patient is amenorrheic and underweight with a very low level of estrogen, she should actually, if she's not wanting to get pregnant, go on the pill to have a cycle and have a form of estrogen replacement to give her a healthy estrogen level. Mm -hmm. And if a patient is overweight and not having periods, the problem there is they are in fact subjecting their body to long-term moderately high estrogen levels, which is associated and, and not having withdrawal bleeds, and therefore that's associated with problems that can occur in the lining of the uterus. So a patient not having periods will usually fall into one of those two categories. Right. And if you have an irregular cycle... What are your tips on getting pregnant? Yeah, well, and it, really in seeing a gynecologist, we can pretty accurately tell if a patient is ovulating just simply because of their cycle. So there's really only two ways to have a regular 28-day cycle, and that's to be on the pill or to be ovulating. So if someone came along and said, my cycle is really irregular, and by that they mean some months it's 15 days and some months it's 60, well, it's unlikely they're ovulating. And even if they are ovulating occasionally, it's going to be so difficult to know when they're ovulating, it's going to be very difficult to know when to try and conceive. And how do you know when you are ovulating? Well, there are multiple, you know, that's a great medical student question, there's... Um, temperature charts, mucus um, change charts. Some uh, women use LH surge detection kits, which um, 
uses either saliva or urine to um, predict the rise of LH in the pituitary gland, which precedes ovulation. But I, you know, I really feel that all of those methods turn trying to get pregnant into a chemistry lesson and instead of a biology exercise. And I think that if you have a very irregular cycle, you should regulate your cycle so that you know simply from time in your cycle when you'll be ovulating and for people to have intercourse more often because the way to get pregnant is to have intercourse. And there's actually been some interesting books published and there was actually an article in the paper yesterday talking about how much less frequently people are having intercourse these days even in their 20s and 30s. Mm. And how do you have intercourse? (laughs) (laughs) You knew it was coming. (laughs) So I... Have you heard of this site called Red Tube? (laughs) That's how it looks for everyone. Everyone has bleached bum holes. (laughs) But it really has reached a point where people want to get pregnant by exactly monitoring when ovulation occurs and having intercourse on exactly the right timing and that's it for the month. When in fact in getting instead of taking your temperature or or getting out of bed and weighing on a stick, if you just had intercourse, well then of course you've got a more likely chance of getting pregnant. The more often you have intercourse, the more likely you'll get pregnant. And indeed, the better quality, the sperm. So the every second day rule is based on the lifespan of an egg and the lifespan of a sperm. So remember, the egg has to travel from the ovary through the fimbria, down the fallopian tube to sort of the third of the fallopian tube closest to the uterus. And the sperm has to travel up through the vagina, through the cervix, through the uterus and up into the fallopian tubes. So if you have intercourse at least every 48 hours, it maximises the chance that there will be sperm and egg in the same vicinity at the same time. If, however, you have intercourse every day, that's fine. And if you have intercourse in a third every third day, that may open a window where the two may not meet. And, uh, of course, mm. more than once a day, unless that's what the couple decide they want to do isn't necessary. Hmm. Once a couple is pregnant, is there anything different an IVF couple versus natural conception need to consider in the pregnancy? Well, clearly an IVF couple, when they present to their doctor pregnant, have a lot, already have a history, whereas for a woman conceiving naturally, that may be the first time she's ever seen a doctor since childhood. So a lot of the early investigations may already have been done for an IVF pregnancy. And sadly for the IVF pregnancy, it's a very long pregnancy because (laughs) the stress and the waiting has started before conception Mm. even occurred. So an IVF patient will know she's pregnant really as early as what we would call three and a half weeks in a pregnant 
pregnancy, although, as you know, with the way we use weeks, the first two weeks, you're not pregnant anyway. Um, and so they are long pregnancies and they are anxious pregnancies. Um, but in, in reality, you know, it is a pregnancy and the patient should be encouraged to be positive about their pregnancy. There's no like higher need for induction or cesareans or anything like that in, well, in IVF? It, in IVF, you're not comparing apples with apples yeah. um, and therefore IVF patients are more likely to have interventions and some of that will be due to the fact that as a demographic, they will be on average older, mm-hmm. on average more likely to have a medical past yeah, history that's true, yeah. and, of course, <laughs> of course, more likely to be anxious about their delivery because uh, the anxiety has been brewing before pregnancy has even occurred. What are some common uterine abnormalities and effects on fertility and miscarriages? Yeah, well, look, there's three important causes of miscarriage that we test for when somebody has had uh, multiple miscarriages and one of them is uterine abnormalities. When the uterus forms embryologically, it comes down from each side of the body so that the uterus meets in the middle and forms in the middle with an ovary out to each side. So sometimes the uterus ends up correctly with a curved top on the uterus and a normal uterine cavity and a normal cervix. And then any sort of alteration of that meeting in the midline can occur to the point where a patient might have two uteruses, two cervixes and two vaginas, but to a lesser extent may have a septum within the uterine cavity. And it's septums that are the ones that are most commonly associated with miscarriage because, of course, a septum will be a thin band of tissue down the centre of the uterine cavity. And if implantation occurs there, uh, it may be less likely to be able to sustain a viable pregnancy. And we can actually surgically remove a septum. Has anyone that's got two uteruses and two vaginas ever got pregnant? At the same time. Well, not even at the same time, but like consecutively from different uteruses and then out different vaginas. Hang on. I'm confused. Who's got two vaginas? So there's people that have got two vaginas. So if you had two uteruses and two vaginas. I thought you were being metaphorical. No, no. No. I, I actually very early in my career delivered a lady and I still see her to this day. Do you mean like... Two entrances. Holes. Two vaginas. Well, you have two holes. No, I know, but like four. Four. Four Four altogether. So um, up. Four flaps. And and, and remember I said that that can occur to every degree. So it might be at the vaginal opening, there's only one opening, but as you pass into the vagina, a septum is in the vagina and it on one passing up through one side of the septum, there's a cervix and a uterine cavity beyond that and passing up the other side of the septum is another cervix and another uterine cavity above that. But, of course, you can't have two pregnancies 
from two different ovulations because ovulation is controlled from above uterus level. It's controlled by the pituitary gland. So once the patient is pregnant in one or other uterus, then they can't get pregnant in another uterus because they're now no longer ovulating. But I meant like in a consecutive pregnancy, has it like been in the other uterus? Yeah, look, usually with two uteruses, one is significantly bigger Bigger. than the other and is, you know, a more functional uterus for having a pregnancy. But, yes, of course, if they were fairly symmetrical. I mean, this is talking about something extremely And this is the last thing. I know it is rare, but people who have two vaginas, are they generally behind the other vagina or side by By side? Side by side. And so a separate vulva as well? No. Okay. Are they on And usually the separation occurs a few centimetres within the vagina. Rather than two openings. Looking at the vagina to say perform pap smear, you wouldn't see that there were two entrances there. It would be more for a few centimetres up the vagina. You can see the septum and go one way or the other. And then you'd need a pap smear on both sides. Yeah, you would tend to take a pap smear on both sides. That has blown my mind. I never knew that. That's incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Very special. Do bad ovulatory pains indicate anything that could affect fertility? Of course, when you're seeing a patient who sees you because they're not ovulating and then they start having ovulation pain, it's important to be reassuring to them that that's a good sign. I mean, this is great. You've now got a 28-day cycle and on day 14 you're getting really severe pains and that's a really good sign. But, of course, pain can indicate other pathology, in particular endometriosis. So if pain is a big component of someone's history, it's important to check for other pathology Mm. that might cause pain. But in general, I would say that if somebody has pain with ovulation, it can sometimes make it easier for them to Mm. know when they ovulate. And many women are very in tune with their bodies and know when they're ovulating and know when to conceive. And I've even, and spoken to other colleagues who have too, um, where a woman's ovulated and bled from the subsequent ovulatory cyst and done a laparoscopy and and there's been like 500 mils of blood or even a litre of blood in the pelvis from bleeding from where the ovulation occurred. So that's when when a sort of normal symptom becomes something very abnormal. But normally it's not something to worry about. Absolutely not. And, in fact, I would encourage someone who has any form of strong cyclical symptom, whether that be mid-cycle pain, uh, mid-cycle discharge, mid-cycle mood changes, in particular increased libido, or who have significant premenstrual symptoms like headaches, breast tenderness, mood changes premenstrually, that they are all very good signs of ovulation. And if someone comes along and says, I never feel any different, well, that's not a good sign that significant hormonal changes are occurring. Well, I concur because I reckon I have every symptom when I ovulate and also... Premenstrually? Oh, and premenstrual. Yeah, premenstrual. But um, I can feel for about either 12 to 48 hours, uh, either one side a month or the other side, yeah. a 
there must be an egg dropping. Yeah. And I can feel that pain. See, I don't get any mid-cycle pains and I very rarely get pre-menstrual pains. I mean, pre-menstrual symptoms. I get a bit irritable sometimes. Should I call Nick and ask him if you can? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He might feel differently. It's interesting because most of the ovulatory monitoring techniques actually developed with the intention of them being contraceptive, not fertility promoting. Yeah. So, in other words, checking for cervical mucus changes and checking for LH surge detection and in particular doing temperature charts have all been recommended um, in the past as ways of detecting ovulation to not have intercourse as a form of contraception and sadly a fairly ineffective form of contraception. But all the same, probably amongst the commonest contraception methods used worldwide. Mm. And... Can you explain what Clomid and Provera are and any tips to increase your chances of conceiving when you're on these medications? Yeah. So Clomid, well, to start, it's important to say that really insemination aside, because I did try to go through the sort of specific indications for that, really the two main treatments of infertility are Clomid and IVF. Now, Clomid is used particularly in women who aren't ovulating, and the most common reason that a woman wouldn't be ovulating would be that she has polycystic ovaries. However, that's not necessarily the case, and you don't have to have polycystic ovaries to not be ovulating. So if somebody comes along with a very irregular cycle and other tests are normal and suggest that this woman is perfectly capable of ovulating, we would use Clomid. Mm-hmm. And Clomid works by, without trying to get too technical, it basically works by blocking the message from the ovary to the pituitary that the estrogen level is rising so that the pituitary gland will work harder making follicle-stimulating hormone to try and get that ovary to ovulate. and You got that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and therefore we would then do a blood test um, later on in the cycle to see if ovulation has occurred. And if it has occurred, you'd expect the patient to either get their period as predicted or be pregnant because they've ovulated. If they haven't ovulated we can use um, Clomid in a higher dose in the next cycle. Provera is progesterone and the use of Provera in fertility is to bring on a period because, for example, to take Clomid, you take that from day two to six of your cycle or a five-day period early in the cycle. It doesn't have to be day two. And for a woman who comes along and says, well, I haven't had a period for six months, there's no point saying to them, well, start these tablets on day two of your cycle because that might not happen. So Provera is used to give the lining of the uterus the impression that ovulation has occurred because after ovulation, progesterone is made. And then when you give the Clomid for five to ten days and then, sorry, the Provera, for five to ten days and then stop it, the body gets the message to have a period. 
and you can then commence your Clomid. And these two um, medications, they are quite like they make your hormones go. Whoosh, and Not moods, really. Or? No, I mean, as I said before, I would like a patient to come back and say they had more cyclical symptoms because that would be a good sign. But Clomid isn't really associated with with extremely high levels of estrogen. Um, and if it is, they're short-lived. So the main two side effects we talk about with Clomid are um, headaches. Again, usually only while you're taking the Clomid for about four to five days and an increased risk of multiple pregnancy. Mm. I have heard some women say that they wish they'd started IVF earlier because they did find that they had way more side effects with Clomid than they did with the IVF itself. I must say the feedback I get from people undergoing any form of fertility treatment is usually that it was a lot easier and a lot more straightforward than they'd anticipated, Mm. even IVF. And that's not me being... um, you know, lacking insight into the to the stress um, emotionally and financially of having fertility treatment and multiple doctors' visits. But what I am saying is that it's not as complicated as people think it is because really getting pregnant just boils down to eggs being fertilised by sperm, creating an embryo, which then in the case of IVF, makes its way into the uterine cavity via a little catheter. And in the case of Clomid treatment, fertilisation still occurs in the body and the embryo makes its way down into the uterus. Why does endometriosis affect fertility? And do you commonly see young women with endo struggling to get pregnant? Well, certainly to the second question, yes. Um, and that is, of course, because that's what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> if you're a plumber, you'd probably say less. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, so I don't see people with, like, fractures and lacerations and things. But, um, yeah, I don't want to make fun of the question because that's a good question. Um, yes, we do see a lot of patients who um, are struggling to get pregnant with endometriosis and, the gold standard for the diagnosis of endometriosis is to do a laparoscopy and look and hopefully if endometriosis is diagnosed to be able to undertake some sort of surgical treatment for that endometriosis. How exactly endometriosis affects fertility is unclear and there are certainly women who conceive spontaneously despite severe endometriosis and other women who have difficulty getting pregnant despite mild endometriosis. But some of the mechanisms that are considered is that the endometriosis, which as the name would sort of suggest, endometriosis is endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, occurring somewhere other than in the lining of the uterus. And that's usually, if you imagine the pelvis, It's on the walls of the pelvis or behind the uterus or on the ovaries. And it's thought that perhaps that endometrium in the endometriosis releases some sort of toxin that is 
against the egg or against the embryo making its way into the uterus. The second theory is that perhaps there's something a little bit different about the actual endometrium of women with endometriosis um, such that they're not as fertile because their endometrium isn't as fertile and it's the sort of endometrium that makes its way out to become endometriosis and therefore isn't as good for fertility. And then, of course, I guess another issue is if someone has endometriosis, it may be very difficult for them to have intercourse yeah. due, due to the pain of, of their endometriosis. Mm. Can you chat a bit about what AMH is and what a good number would yeah. be to have? Yeah. Well, this is the AMH level or anti-malarian hormone level, so that's not anything to do with malaria, it's M-U-L-L, anti-malarian hormone level, is used now to look at the egg reserve. It's actually made by non-active follicles in the ovary, so they're not follicles that are about to, ovulated, to ovulate, and therefore they're known as antral follicles. So you can actually measure the anti-malarian hormone level at any time in the cycle and even if a woman's on the pill because you're really measuring a hormone from inactive follicles. Yeah, right. And we know from experience that if somebody has a low egg reserve, often that is associated with poorer quality. So you put that that poorer quantity is often associated with poorer quality. So the level we expect is on a graph which clearly expects a higher range and a higher level when you're younger and makes its way down to a very low level as you get older, reaching virtually zero by 45 plus. So it's really a matter of interpreting that level uh, according to what you'd expect from that person's age. So just let me say finally about the AMH is that it's an extremely helpful diagnostic test which is used a lot in infertility and we're very grateful to have it and it's been a, it's been a great innovation. But please don't um, over-interpret the AMH level and do make sure that if if you're worried about your AMH level, that you seek the opinion of someone who can give a full analysis of what led to your AMH level being what it is and what it means. If you've had no medical diagnosis for your infertility and required um, required IVF for, say, your first conception, mm. are you likely to then require it again for your next one or should you try naturally first? Yeah, well, there was a very good article written some years ago by one of my colleagues at Monash IVF, Gab Kovacs, who talked about IVF being a cure for infertility. And what he meant by that was that so many people have IVF to conceive a pregnancy and then, in fact, conceive a pregnancy subsequently without IVF. And, and that, that is a very true statement. So given that at least 40% of cycles of IVF are done on couples where no significant specific 
underlying cause for them not being pregnant has been found, it is hardly surprising that many women will conceive before their IVF starts, between IVF cycles naturally, or in a subsequent pregnancy um, conceiving naturally. And indeed, I have I ha- have delivered a fourth baby to a couple who had three IVF babies prior to that. Because you can imagine if someone's had three IVF babies in the past, it's very difficult to convince that couple to be conscientious with regard to contraception <laughs> because they've spent thousands of dollars and so much time and effort and stress getting pregnant those three times, the last thing they want to do is be taking the pill or or concentrating on contraception. But it, it, it is not a, like a an old wives' tale that getting pregnant on IVF for your first pregnancy and then getting pregnant naturally the second time is common. That is a very true story. And do you think any of that comes down to the stress of getting pregnant maybe not being as great now because they've had a successful pregnancy or do we don't really know why? I guess the the reason I can't say that I know why is because by categorising a couple as idiopathic infertility means I basically don't know why they're not getting pregnant. So I'd have to confess when they then do get pregnant, I don't know what it was <laughs> that they got right that time. Yeah, yeah. And and when you think that humans as a species are so poorly fertile and that plenty of species will get pregnant every single cycle that they mate and often with Thank multiple goodness. offspring, it's hardly surprising that statistically if your chances of getting pregnant are, say, you know, 15 to 20% per cycle, that they're amongst those people. It's like if you roll a heads, or you just, sorry, flip a coin and get a heads, it is still 50-50 the next time. But you can somehow get 20 heads in a row. Yeah. It can happen. So I couldn't claim to know why yeah. that difference is. And the other one is when we do infertility investigations, often after a patient has a diagnostic laparoscopy, and by diagnostic I mean we're having a look in to check the tubes are patent, that there's no endometriosis, that the uterus and ovaries look normal, and we also look inside the uterine cavity and do a curette. It's amazing how many of those patients come back within the next few months pregnant. So is it because we stimulated the lining of the uterus by doing the curette? Is it because we gently, slightly dilated the cervix? Or is it because we flushed fluid through the fallopian tubes? I don't know. And that's still being investigated very, very strongly. But it's more than just an observation by me. It's a well-known fact. So on to contraception, postpartum contraception options. Do tell. So postpartum, the most significant opening point there is that you can't use estrogen-containing methods of contraception if you're breastfeeding. So if you're not breastfeeding, all methods of contraception are available to you. However, if you are breastfeeding, then you can use progesterone 
forms of contraception, which would include the Mirena IUD, the Implanon device, and the mini pill, all of which contain an identical progesterone. And then you can use condoms. And some patients would choose to use condoms because perhaps with a new baby, they're not having intercourse as frequently. And therefore, it's better just to use a contraception that is an, on an as-you-need-it basis, whereas something like the mini pill has to be taken every day at the same time every day. And part of a postnatal visit will be to talk about ongoing contraception and you certainly can't rely on breastfeeding as a contraceptive if you really don't want to get pregnant, although, of course, it does have a partial contraceptive effect. And any tips for ways to come off the pill if you have PCOS or polycystic ovaries? I would only ever come off the pill um, just by stopping it at a period. Um, that doesn't mean you need to reach the sugar pills because, of course, you'll just have a withdrawal bleed wherever you stop the pill. But one bit of advice that that is related to that question is that if you've decided in the past because you have an ongoing history of polycystic ovaries and irregular cycles consistent with not ovulating, you can dovetail either IVF or Clomid treatment into stopping the pill by using the stopping the pill as bringing on a period. So it's 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 a good idea to say, right, well, I'm going to use Clomid, so I'll take the pill until I want to start getting pregnant and then stop the pill, get a withdrawal bleed mm. and start your Clomid. Because otherwise if you're waiting it could be, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you don't know how long. Yeah. So if a woman comes along and she's 35 and says every single time I stop the pill I don't get a period at all, well, there's no point saying, well, when you want to try and get pregnant, why don't you stop the mm. pill and we'll see what happens, you know. Unless Come and that, see me nine months down yeah, the track. Unless that lady, of course, may have made lifestyle changes, particularly with PCOS, and lost a significant amount of weight where she may wish to stop the pill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, stop the pill to see if by reaching a more ideal weight she is ovulating spontaneously. On to preconception questions, just a couple. If you're a very healthy young individual, should you still see your GP before you start trying to conceive? Look, that's a... a there is a new answer to that question, funnily oh, enough. Do tell. Uh, Up to date. So, first of all, by seeing the GP, and this goes back to what I was flattering you about before and saying women trying to conceive are not just a homogenous <laughs> population of people. So, if you were diabetic or epileptic or hypertensive or had thyroid conditions, it would be extremely important that you saw your GP or your specialist and said, look, I am going to try and get pregnant. Do I need to change my medication? Do I need to change the monitoring of my medication? Or do I need to change the dose of my medication? So not everyone has no medical past history. Fortunately, a lot of young fertile women don't have a medical history and that's great. 
The second thing is you could receive advice on your cycle and therefore more scientific recommendations on how often to have intercourse and when to have intercourse in the cycle. The doctor could check that you were immune to rubella and chickenpox, and if you weren't, vaccinate you for those so that before you get pregnant, that's already been taken care of, and also take that opportunity to check your blood count and thalassemia screen, particularly in certain ethnic backgrounds, and your blood group so that it's handy to know before you've even started getting pregnant if you have a positive or a negative blood group. The other investigation, of course, is a pap smear, and great news to all Australian women is that pap smears only need to be performed every five years now. So if a patient saw her GP as a pre-pregnancy visit and her pap smears weren't up to date, well, look, really, if she was to have a pap smear that day and it's normal... Well, she knows she's got all the time in the world to try and get pregnant and have a baby before her next smear's due. And for even more importantly, if it's abnormal, get the abnormality sorted out before, before she gets yeah. pregnant. Just quickly, can you have a pap smear while you're pregnant? You can. Yeah. You can. We don't tend to do a pap smear, but then I would tend to find that most women in my practice their smears are up to date. Yeah. Whereas if you were in a practice where most women came whose smears weren't up to date, I would recommend having yeah. a smear mm. at the first visit. Yeah. But the next thing I want to get onto now is prenatal genetic testing for women con- contemplating pregnancy because it's now recommended that all women be offered, I'm not saying you should be compelled to do it, you should be offered testing for cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and fragile X. And, of course, the ideal time to be tested for that is when you're not pregnant so that you're not in a panic if one of them comes up positive that you're already pregnant. Now, these are recessive conditions so that if your test comes back negative for all three of them, there's no need for your husband to be tested. And one in 25 women carry the cystic fibrosis gene. So a simple case of arithmetic would bring out that that makes it quite common for cystic fibrosis to happen because there'd be a 1 in 25 times 25 chance that both in the couple carry the gene. Mm -hmm. And then if they both carry the gene, there's a 1 in 4 chance the baby would be affected and a one in two chance of it being a carrier, which isn't a problem. So it's now been strongly recommended for about 12 to 18 months that all women contemplating pregnancy, so a patient who comes to see me for fertility workup or in early pregnancy, I would offer them that test. Now, for those who are more Google savvy, they will have come across tests that offer up to 140 genetic screens. And I will warn you that there is talk of one on the way that may contain as many as 1,000 different genetic characteristics to be screened for. Now, even putting aside the 1,000, the 141, virtually everyone will come up positive for one of those genes. So you need to ask yourself, 
how far do we want to go with genetically testing ourselves prior to getting pregnant because no one is going to be genetically perfect. If you're going to do one of those tests, you may as well test both both partners at the same time because you know for sure both are going to come up mm. positive for something. And we're not just talking about like a lifelong, life-shortening, severe condition like cystic fibrosis. We're talking about genes that say that you will be in the top fifth percentile of height or hair colour or risk of high blood pressure. And these are creating great dilemmas, you know, morally, um, philosophically in medicine. And the other thing is that ask yourself the question, how accurate is that test? If this test says I'm positive for that gene, well, cystic fibrosis has hundreds of different genetic variations. So you can't even be certain with those sorts of tests how accurate they are. Mm. So I very much encourage my patients to have the three chromosome testing one with spinal muscular atrophy, cystic fibrosis most importantly, and fragile X. And indeed, in the in the 18 months to two years since I've been doing it, I've had people come up positive with all three of those conditions. Mm. Um, but fortunately, I haven't had any couples that have come up uh, positive for cystic fibrosis in both of the couples. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting into very muddy water. It is, it is. And and I know we you know that a lot of things, you know, when seatbelts were invented, people didn't want to wear them. I, I I don't want to sound too behind the times by sounding cynical about them, but when tests come out, you need to be very conscious of the implications of a positive result and also the accuracy of this result yeah. itself. Mm. Sorry for the abrupt ending, folks. That's the end of part one of our chat with Dr. Timmy. But tune in next week for part two where we speak about pregnancy, labour and delivery and postpartum questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.